When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking flushing dogs with Jeremy Moore. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 227. Welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We've got a good conversation coming up with Jeremy Moore in just a couple minutes. I do want to thank Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these conversations coming your way. They're all eligible for some bonus episodes. I do those with Nick Adair. We do Patreon giveaways, which we'll have another winner to announce shortly for the Keith Coyle Wing Shooting Instruction video course. And we do set everybody up with some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, I'll throw out another reminder for the Birdshot Podcast survey. Quick little survey. There's a link in the show notes of a bunch of recent episodes, including this one. If you haven't done so already, I would appreciate you taking just a couple minutes and zipping through that survey. It's 22 questions. Won't take you very long. They're simple questions. Your feedback is very valuable to me. And if you have not done so already, I would appreciate you filling that out quickly. All right, this is the last episode ahead of the 4th of July holiday, which for me brings a number of things to mind. Maybe first and foremost, a little fun in the sun with family and friends. Hopefully you all have a little bit of that going on in your life. I'll be heading to the family cabin this weekend, and I cannot wait for that. Forecast looks good, nice and hot. The water should be refreshing after the dose of much-needed rain we just got over the last few days. Multiple rain events. We definitely needed it. Things were getting really dry, and they are no longer. So I think that was pretty timely. But also, when thinking about the 4th of July, 
it positions us at a place in the summer where I'm sure, like many people listening, I cannot help but look ahead just a little bit. We are rounding a bend of sorts, and perhaps not coincidentally, on my trail run earlier today, I just flushed a grouse. I didn't see any chicks nearby and really couldn't tell if it was a male or female bird based on the glimpse I got of it. I think both of us were a little surprised when I came around that corner and the bird took to wing right out from under me. So that gave me a bit of a start, but the point is, hunting season is inching closer and closer, and it'll be here before we know it, I'm sure, which is always fun to think about. So hopefully you're out getting those dogs in shape, maybe rushing up on the shooting skills. I got to shoot a bunch of clays at the Minnesota Horse and Hunt Club last week. That was fun. Knocking the rust off a bit. September's on the way. But for now, we'll remain in preparation mode and continue daydreaming about days of field on the horizon. And with that said, let's move into our conversation today with Jeremy Moore of Dogbone Hunter, someone I was really excited to get on the podcast. He's been recommended countless times, and I've certainly enjoyed following along some of his videos and podcasts and articles with his young English setter out of Northwoods Bird Dogs, where my two setters are from. But I knew that before I got Jeremy on the show to talk about pointing dogs and English setters, we had to cover Jeremy and his labs and retrieving flushing dog work first. So that is the primary focus of our conversation today. It was fairly wide-ranging and quite lengthy, but Jeremy has a lot of valuable information to share, and I really enjoy this one. So the plan is to bring Jeremy back on relatively soon to get into some more pointing dog stuff, maybe some more rough grouse hunting. We may mix in some questions in that episode, so if anything comes to mind after hearing this conversation today, if you have questions about retrievers or pointing dogs or anything that you want to ask Jeremy, really feel free to send those in to me, nick at birdshoppodcast.com. Would love to field a few of those before we reconnect and get him back on for part two of this conversation. But for now, we're going to get right into it. It is a long one today. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshop Podcast, Jeremy Moore. All right, buddy. Well, it's, uh, I don't know about you, but it is a nice, cool, cloudy day. It almost feels like September here today. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You got any September vibes going on? You know, the last few weeks have actually, we've gotten some really nice little cool mornings and uh, yeah. working dogs has been nicer. And so I am, uh, I am feeling it a little bit. I, I saw geese flying last night and I thought, man, it's a little early for that, but kind of gets you thinking about it. Yeah, it's it's that time of year where any a little scent in the air or some yeah. kind of a feeling comes over you, you start to, you start thinking ahead. <laughs> For it's sure. hard not to. For sure. Yeah, indeed. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, Jeremy. I thank you for taking some time to join us on the show. I'm I'm excited we finally had a chance to connect. Looking forward to chatting today. We've got plenty to cover, but why don't we start by, in case anybody is not familiar with you and your work at Dogbone Hunter, uh, give us a little background on sort of what you do in the world of bird dogs and, and sure. bird hunting. Sure. Yeah. No, I, like I said before, man, I really appreciate you having me. This is a podcast that I'm pretty excited about, actually, because it's one of my favorite ones. I, I've, I've gained, admittedly, over um, however many years it's been now that you've been doing it, this is a podcast that I get a lot out of, like value. And so I've really, really enjoyed a lot of the guests and um, it's really an honor to be able to, to be a part of it. So, um, but yeah, I, my, for, for dog wise, and that's obviously our connection, I think 
is, and that's usually how I end up being connected with everybody is somehow connected yeah. through a dog. But um, I've got, I, I personally own Labradors. I've had them for a long time. I've got my first one in 2000 and I got my first um, British dog in 2003. So it, that's really a, been a very passionate thing for me is, is um, developing those dogs. And I use them for everything. I mean, I hunt, I, I'm a big hunter, so I, I hunt just about everything. And um, that was really, but for me, it's the dog part of the hunting that is the most exciting and the, mo- the most, it draws me, I guess, the most. Yeah. So um, retrievers have been part of our family forever. My, we had golden retrievers prior to me getting a lab in college. And uh, I, we hunt everything, upland, and, and we do gun dog work. You know, I, I, we do a lot of duck hunting and goose hunting. Um, and in college, I really did a lot of that. That's kind of where I got really excited about the, the retriever stuff in the labs was I went to UW-Stout, which is kind of on the Minnesota border. Yeah. A lot of my buddies were Minnesota guys. And Minnesota waterfowling is a whole different level. Like those, those friends of mine were were just so into it and they, they got me into it. And, um, so that was, you know, when I really, really started digging into the labs and then, but I'm a big deer hunter. And so I, I shed hunt a lot. Um, I, I bow, I'm a big bow hunter. I love bow hunting, love gun hunting. So I needed, I, I wanted to figure out ways to incorporate dogs and have them be kind of an asset or a tool in the other parts of hunting other than originally it was just kind of pheasant hunting for me when when, in grouse hunting when i was really young we were taking we were skipping out of school or taking half days and and going up to where i'm from originally in kind of north central wisconsin and we'd just go up there and bring my family's golden retrievers and follow them around and and try to shoot grouse we didn't shoot very many of them but we tried (laughs) um so that's kind of how it got started and then i recently got into and it, it partially inspired by kind of hearing some of your story and folks that you have talked with, but I ended up getting into a, a setter and it's mm. the first pointing breed that I've ever had. So she's a year and a half. Um, and it's been real interesting. It's been interesting from a training perspective. I, I get into the training part a lot. And yeah. so our products, our company Dogbone, um, is one of our brands and that's all built off of products that, I've either tweaked or kind of designed originally and, and developed. And, um, we, our hope with our company is to help people train their own dogs. Cause we, I, I guess technically I am a prof- professional, you know, you get paid to do something you're professional, I guess. So yeah. I am that, but I'm not a kennel. So like, I don't bring in a large number of dogs and I don't have to, um, get through big quantities of dogs. I, I do it really, really small, um, in on a very small level and i think that training dogs that way is 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 different and it's unique um the approach you can take with it because you know it's like building i mean you you're very familiar with a lot of this stuff so like guns you know if you build one gun at a time or you are producing a large number of guns that are repeated you know replicated over and over and over again there's a lot different um, there's a different technique or, or way to, to craft that. Yeah. And I look at dogs very similar to that. And I don't think that they necessarily make sense to train um, the same. And so, and I, and I'm a big believer in like, you break it down even smaller. Like I, I can't 
doing them one at a time, I, I don't do, I don't do two the same way. They're all different. And so, yeah. um, that's kind of how, that's, that's kind of the, the understory of our, of our business right now. Yeah. The, the origin story, which is interesting. I, I've, well, I appreciate the kind words about the bird shop podcast. I, I of course love hearing that, but I love hearing from people that have listened to the show over the years and found value in the conversations and, and the guests. So, yeah, uh, that, that certainly never gets old, but, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting. I've, I've been, you know, you've been recommended as a guest by a number of people for quite a, quite a while. I've been aware of you and, and you connected with my buddy, Ted summer a couple of years ago. And then it was mm-hmm. like all these sort of things kept like my buddy, Joe in Duluth, he has a dog out of the same litter as you. Sure. And I know yeah. you guys, yeah. you guys chatted at one point. So it's like all these things start intersecting and it's, it's, I've been, it's, taken me a while to really get in touch with you but i kind of in the back of my mind i had all these things i wanted to talk to you about and i think Mm -hmm. i was putting it off to like where's this big chunk of time that i can sit down and chat with jeremy and clearly we're gonna have to break this up a little bit but sure i I remember i was was reading this morning actually you you borrowed 500 bucks to get that first lab from your from your parents what so you had had golden retrievers growing up At, at that time your interests and stuff you were needed to get a lap you were you were duck hunting you were maybe doing a little upland hunting what was the impetus there yeah it was so pheasant hunting was what what i kind of grew up doing my dad used to go to iowa um and and i remembered watching him go to iowa and want, waiting for him to come back and he'd always yeah. do, you know feathers and all that stuff so i was pretty young then but um i got to go when i was 16 and so that was the first year i got to go and back then we did we did iowa um that would have been 96 so we did Iowa for like a couple of years and then he, my dad would go with a big group of guys. And so the, uh, the group kind of moved their way into South Dakota. Birds just weren't, weren't there in Iowa the way they had been. So then they went up to South Dakota and then from South Dakota, we ended up going to North Dakota and this is all over a period of 10, 15 years, I suppose. But the Goldens were the dominant thing. Everybody in his group had Goldens. And so we got one, we got a puppy out of, out of one of my dad's friends, um, breedings. And so that was kind of our start to it and very much a family dog first, but we wanted to pheasant hunt too. So, you know, we, we did that when I got to the lab part, it was when I was in college. So, and I brought my parents golden. Um, I kind of got in a little, as I got a little bit older in high school, I got into working the dogs a little bit more, really not knowing exactly what I was doing, but, um, they were very natural dogs. And I, I've, I've, looking back on it is where I put so much value on genetics in, in, in all dogs, but in specifically in hunting dogs, I guess, because it can really make life a lot easier and it can make it almost hard to screw up. Um, and, and I've, 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 that's become clearer and clearer to me over the years. And so those dogs were really good. Um, how, how we lucked into that, I don't know, but we did. And, they hunted very naturally. They were real biddable. They wanted to please us. And, um, but when I got to college, that, that golden that I had brought to school worked fine, but my parents didn't want to give her up. They wanted her back home. And I, you know, I wanted my own dog as well. So the, everything was labs. Uh, all the duck hunting guys were labs. Nobody was, nobody had a golden. So I felt like, yeah, I got, you know, one in Rome. So I, I, I looked in the paper and I bought a dog out of the paper, um, back in, in my hometown, Green Bay. And she wasn't, you know, she wasn't out of, uh, 
any type of serious field trial. She was an American bred dog, and she wasn't out of any any serious field trial lines or anything like that. Um, in hindsight, probably a blessing. Um, she was a family dog and a and a hunting dog, and and she was she was really fantastic, really a smart dog, really really intelligent dog, and um, I got more serious about training then, and she just took to it really well, and I back then was pretty limited with my resources. So, I mean, this yeah. is like, this is early 2000s. I, I thought, right? Yeah. I, I bought her in 2000 and like, it sounds silly, but like internet stuff really wasn't even yeah. big. Like there was, maybe there, there was, was a the forum internet, or something. It, right. I, so I, I mean, and I actually did find her in the paper newspaper. So that kind of dates it a little bit because yeah. that's how people used to look for dogs. And, yep. and so, so when I got her, it was, um, she was very. She was just a really good dog. She trained very well. I was focusing with her on, on doing um, gun dog stuff. And I, but I, but we pheasant hunted too. We actually out in college. I was me and some of my buddies. I had a buddy with a Springer. I had a buddy with a Wyme. I had a buddy with a GSP. We all kind of got our first dogs those those second third years of college, and we went to a game farm. We we joined a game farm, a pheasant farm, and we put them on tons of birds. And, and we scratch hunted, like we didn't, we didn't, we couldn't afford birds. So we would just go out like on Monday. And after the weekend, when, when guys had put a lot of birds out, we'd go and just scratch hunt. And I think that helped our dogs. I think it helped us, um, start to understand a little bit more about them. And, and that was, those were the, those early days, that was that first Labrador. And, but then I got into it so much that I really started studying it. And I think it's one of those things that, I don't tiptoe like if I'm gonna I'm gonna do something I usually get into it pretty deep and if if I like it and I did like it and so then I really started getting and I I went to a um I went to a Ducks Unlimited outdoor festival they called it It was a big big show that they used to have in Wisconsin here don't have it anymore but and there was a guy there uh, his name's Mike Stewart and he had a kennel called Wild Rose Kennels and Mm -hmm. he had British labs and at the time they were doing um they, Ducks Unlimited had partnered with him and they were doing this mascot dog. And that just really, really was interesting to me because I went and I watched this demonstration with these dogs and I just loved the way they moved. I loved the way they looked. Um, they they just had a different, a very different feel to the dog. It was They were just real calm. And I the, the intensity was there, but it was like, oh man, it's the... It's just, it was a very relaxing thing to watch as opposed yeah. to, because I, I watched a lot of American dog, dog stuff too. And I don't want to turn this into an American versus the British thing, but it, there's a difference there. And when I, when I watch my style personally in the style I hunt in the style I live and it just fit a little bit better to that dog that was um, just a, 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 had a more calm sense to it. And so I so I started digging into that. Well, I couldn't afford that. I mean, it was it was relatively expensive at the time, sure. and but I I ended up um, kind of have that on my list, and I I watched and I adapted my training very much so in that direction, which was no collars. I couldn't afford an e collar, uh, and that was probably my first reason I didn't never bought one was just because I couldn't afford it. But I thought you had to have one because everybody that I saw and listened to and uh, observed had one and I, I thought it was almost like a it's a cool thing like it was a cool thing to have it was the cool mm-hmm. thing to put on your dog it looked made these dogs look cool i hated the look of them and so <laughs> i just 
I never could afford one. I never had one. And this guy didn't train with one. Mike, Mike, Mike didn't have one on his dogs. So I got to know Mike really well and I did business with them for, for several years. And, um, they're, they're, they're great people and, um, good friends. I don't, I don't see them nearly as often as I used to just things have changed over years, but, um, I loved what he was doing with those dogs. And that was, so I started mimicking that and going, I'm not going to train with a collar either. And I've never known it any other way. And so yeah. then I've saved up and I actually bought dogs of those lines. And so over the last 20 years now, I've, I've actually bred, we, I've got a pup, I've got two puppies I'm training right now. They're out of, um, out of, well, there's a connection to these dogs that we're into about the fourth generation of dogs that I've bred. And so over 20 years, I've trained a whole bunch of them. And, and it's a style of dog that fits the style of training, which fits the style of hunting, which fits the style of our lifestyle family-wise. So it's just, I think those are really important things to line up. Yeah, I love that. So, man, retrievers and flushing dogs are, are certainly a, a well undercovered subject on the birdshot podcast, which I acknowledge and recognize. And there's so many different directions I want to go, but I'd like to, let's have you talk a little bit about not to, as you pointed out, not trying to make it a British versus American lab, but are you hitting on the main differences that you see, or would that be too broad of a statement? Like what kind of defines a British lab versus an American lab? Cause even me from the outside looking in, I, I am aware of those two sure. different categories. Yeah. Yeah. And I should be careful about it too, because I, I get in this mindset of they're two different dogs and they're really not. I mean, they're not, they're, they're all labs. And, but I think what, what I have found is, a lot of it is, I think, connected to the mentality that we have when we get them. You know, like, because I, I, cause British dogs, just because they're British dogs don't mean that I think they're good. And just because they're American dogs don't, doesn't mean that I think they're good or, or bad, one, one, one way or the other, because there's good ones and there's bad ones of both. And then I say that and I correct myself really quickly. And I go, no, there isn't. There's not a bad one out there. I have found, I have realized there, there aren't bad dogs. There's bad fits. And yeah. so... There are dogs that just don't fit what, what the trainer or owner is after or can handle. And so I, but I do think there are definite tendencies with styles of these dogs. And so my, the, the, you know, the, what I think the primary difference is it, it should in a perfect world go back to, I think, application of what our ultimate goal is with the dog and what, what a lot of the, because I'll back up to that that first dog of mine was an American bred dog, like nothing British about her. And she was as British as of a dog style wise, as I've ever owned. She was very calm. She was, um, she had, she, she had a very natural retrieve. Like I didn't, I didn't have to, um, I I always think it's funny when we talk about training retrieve into dogs, Mm. we never talk about training point into point into pointers. Right. That's weird. That's almost like, yeah, you're not supposed to, you you shouldn't have to. It's like a given. Yeah, exactly. And so, so I am, I am really big on this idea of natural inherent things in the dogs and bringing it out. And, And really it's, I know we have to shape it at some point to fit exactly how we want, but, um, with the, with the British dogs, I think it goes back to, and I don't want to turn this into a field trial debate either because that's a touchy subject. And I have to be real careful about that because I talk about trials because trials are 
trials really were designed to um, shape the breeding pool. Like we're, we're, it was, it was supposed to be something that replicates what we're after as a sporting with a sporting dog, you know, hunting. Mm-hmm. And I, I always go back to this idea of what do we really have these dogs for? You know, today I think some people very heavily are, you know, maybe more heavily on family dog than anything, but the original purpose of these things was functional and, and it was to help us with hunting. And it was either to help us be successful with hunting, or in my opinion, as we talk about retrievers specifically, it was, it's a, it's a, for me, it's a game, it's a recovery thing. So like it's, it's finding game. Like, and that is where, when you look at standards of what these British dogs are, and you look at their trial situation. So an American trial versus a British trial, they're pretty, they're pretty black and white. They're, they're very different. Different. And, and the way they're structured and the way they're structured drives the way we breed and the way we breed, because you make, you want to, you want to have the right tools, you know, to do the job, right. You want to have the right tools. So when we start looking at some of the stuff that the, that they do overseas field trial wise, you know, the, I, I don't know if it's the formal definition, but as, as I, in, in the best words that I think make the most sense and understandable to me is you want an efficient game finder, meaning they're going to, and, and in order to do it, and as a, and in, as a caveat to it, they have to be calm and quiet and steady, and they have to be very efficient when it comes to finding game. And so I think of that def- definition. Now that should be the winner. Like that should be the, the one that does that the best should win yeah. in their trial system. And trials are so subjective. They're just not, um, they're not, those, those trials are not scored as like, it's not a points system. And there's not a, you get this many points for this. And then you add up and whoever has the most points wins. It's not that way. So is it fair? Probably not. Is that life? Absolutely. So it's really why I enjoy it. It's why I like it. Um, and so when you look at what they're, how they're measuring their dogs over there, it relates very closely to how I want to um, apply my dogs in a, a, a use stamp, from a use standpoint. Like I hunt them, they're hunting dogs. Yeah. And so to me, that's a natural, it's just a much more natural fit where you know, in the American system um, of field trials, there's a, there's ver- there's variations to it. So I'll say that people will get upset when I say stuff like this, and sure. and I get it. I just can't make everybody happy anymore. But yeah. uh, the the American systems are different, and and they've changed. And I think they started out a lot closer, and a lot lot more um, with the right kind of intentions. But I think they've shifted, and I think they've shifted partially because the dogs have become so good, our training has become so good, like. Americans have an incredible ability to train dogs. Like we can just get them to do stuff that is mind blowing. And we have tools that help us do that. But what, what I think the, the unintended consequence with all that stuff is, is that it create now in the system of trials, it creates some really unnatural situations. Like we're, we're, we're asking dogs to become essentially not hunters anymore in a lot of respects. Like and become dogs. become more yeah they're just becoming more robotic and and that to me that's that's going the wrong direction i think and i i i have nothing against it i think it's great for people to be involved with um and i gotta put that out there because you know i'm not against it it's just not for me and it's just not of of interest to me 
but what I wanted, what I, what, what's so important to me is the hunting part. And so when we start yeah. talking to Upland, you know, I hunt, I hunt my retrievers. I, I quarter them, you know, we, we flush with them. And now that I've got um, the pointing dog, I use them even different. I use them differently. I use them the same and I use them the different and I use it with all the exact same dog. And so it's a, to me, that's the beauty of the, of the retriever is the definition in, in, you, if you look up the word versatile, I think that the, the Labrador Retriever should be a picture next to it. because And I know that'll ruffle feathers with some folks sure. because of the terminology, <laughs> but that's just terminology. The versatile hunting dog uh, is really impressive that, you know, from a nat, like the NAVDA groups. But I think the, the actual word versatility, you know, the ability to adapt and do different things, a lab should be right there. And, and I understand they're not, they shouldn't be in that group because it's a different thing, but that to me is, is very valuable um, as a hunter. Cause I hunt it cause I hunt so many different things with them. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I, I'm, I'm, I'm following along. Obviously the, you know, versatile is a word that is kind of used in NAVDA, but the pure description of the word, it's a lot of times it's like, you know, in the way we say things, you, you mentioned something midway there that I, I just did an interview uh, last week with Sonny Picars that we talked about a few of these things and like sometimes it's just the word you use training like I remember when I was getting my first bird dog and we're gonna train like that word training mm-hmm. just kind of gets like you think oh like I've got it it's it's set up yeah. formal scenarios all kinds of stuff which is not always what you need to be doing and yeah as you, as you, as you pointed out, like a lot, a lot of times it's just time and experience give you perspective that you don't have and everything becomes clear in hindsight. I mean, I, I get that totally. now it's just like it, what I do with my dogs is, is much more what I would call, I would like to call development or, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, shaping or molding, yeah. you know, it, it's much more of that than, than training. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really not teaching them anything. I'm giving them opportunities to let their natural genetics sort of develop. And then I'm doing what I can to mostly stay out of their way, but then shape and shape and mold a little bit so we can work together yeah. uh, as a team. So I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, you, how many kids you have, how many kids do you have? Two. Two. Too, so yeah. I've got three. We talked a little bit about that before we got on the air here, recording-wise. I I think raising is the way to describe puppies and and dogs, you know. And I because train with kids, we raise them. We don't train them. Right. I mean, we're kind of training them at <laughs> times. There's little there's there's little points where we're making some real focused effort to make a point. But I think the the problem is, is if you only gain, if you're only moving forward with, with the dog or the kid in those moments, you're missing out on so much opportunity because they're always learning. That's the, that's the thing is they're yeah, always, yeah. they're always, they're always learning stuff. And so if we can control and understand that and then control it to be like, well, why not have them learn the right thing more often than not? It's just going to make life a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another great point too, is that, that I think when you say training, you sort of in your mind and, and maybe somebody is not this way. I get like, this is how I sort of think about it. It's like you say training. So when, when I'm training, that's when I'm training the dog, but then you kind of have this tendency to eliminate 
the rest of the 23 and a half hours of the right. day and say, oh, you know, we were training then, but now we're just going about our right. life. But to your point, they're always learning. Yeah. And you can, you can, if you think about it in that way, you can miss a lot of opportunities for very easy shaping and molding and, and developing a lot of everything. Like a lot of what is done with bird dogs is just the simple little daily routines and, mm -hmm. and shaping and molding versus the very, very structured training, which there is a time and a place for, as you aptly yeah. pointed out. Rep yeah. I always say repetition and consistency equals a habit and like that, but that, I mean, that's not even just dogs. It's like people, that's everything. And that, if you can do that, and, and it's a mind, it's a very much a mindset thing. I think yeah. when it comes to to raising dogs, is shifting your mind to recognize that it's a majority of the time thing. And if you if you realize, and I think there's there's great times to put them away. Like I've got Makina's laying next to me right now. I've got the two puppies right before we got on here. I took them outside. I gave them a little bit of free time. I made sure they did their bathroom stuff. I because I knew that we were gonna, they were going to be in the kennel for a while. That's a great opportunity for them to learn. They've been, they've learned that more often than not to be in that crate and be in that kennel and be calm and be patient. And it becomes a very nice tool for me um, to use. But it, it's this idea of like, if you look at, like you said, the twenty-four hours in the day, use as many of them as you can in your to to be in your to your advantage you know and all of a sudden all of a sudden then training becomes like easy and that's what I, that's really like with our with our company i think one of our goals is we don't really have a formal we should probably do this but and i've talked about it but it's just this cultural thing of what is your culture and our our intentions or our hopes is to help people train their own dogs like that is 100 percent our goal and it's the reason is is to have them be able to enjoy their dog more because I think that that's, that's brought me so much happiness, the ability to enjoy my dog. And to be able to share that with someone and help them do that um, is probably the most rewarding part of, of my job. Yeah, yeah, recognizing that you can do it. And it, it, in all likelihood, is probably, I mean, if you're somebody like me that overthinks things and over, it, it is simpler than, than I built up in my mind. And once yeah. you realize that, it's, you know, it's pretty so. freeing to know you can do it. For sure. And that's, that's, you nailed it there. It is. It's not that complicated. There's just, it's just like everything else though, is as you get into stuff, nothing's complicated. I mean, everything's simple, but the more you get into it, the more you realize there's a lot of layers there and there's, yeah. there are a lot of little small things that make the difference. And so, um, I, I think it is important to try to take away the the fear or hesitation in the idea of training a dog because I I get stuck with it too I mean you know we'll talk more probably at some point on it but when I got that setter that was uncharted waters for me and mm -hmm. so I got stuck several times I continue to get stuck where I where I've just I'm in new new spot where I've never been before and I go you can over you can think about it all you want but it doesn't do shit you got to do something so eventually you got to move and but I think it's this idea of with the retrievers for me after so many years and so many dogs, um, it's so natural to me. It just becomes so, it just feels so normal, but I, I like being in a position with that setter to go. I understand what a lot of the people that send me messages are asking. Sometimes you wonder like, what do you mean? How, how can you not understand that? But when, if you look at it and go, well, if it's their first dog or their first mm -hmm. couple dogs, 
how, how would they understand it? Why would they understand it? Yeah. So <laughs> it, it makes me empathetic to the idea of you got to, I have to, I have to put myself in other people's shoes at times and realize how can, how can they don't understand that? Well, because they ha- you can tell me all you want, but I don't feel it until I feel it. Like I don't, it doesn't, I got to walk that before yeah. I can really understand it. But I think it's, so we're in that, we're, that's the thing that we try to do. I think the most is provide it, give, give people as much information, but then like got to help them almost push them off the cliff at times too and try it and if it doesn't work change it a little bit if it doesn't work change it because it's like this i went to this blacksmithing shop class my Mm. wife and i did this blacksmithing class for a christmas present one year and we made simple stuff made these hooks and you you know you start out like the guy guy was really good and he was a very good teacher and a really good instructor and as he went through it his his words that he used because me personally i was trying to do stuff too fast i was putting the thing in and getting it hot and trying to get too much done. And, and really he said, he kept it saying it's just co- like it's you about- saw in the movies, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so he said, kept saying coax and correct. You coax and correct. You coax and correct. That's what you're doing with the metal. I thought, God, man, this, that's a, I've never heard anybody say that before, but that's all I'm doing with these dogs. Coax and correct, coax and correct, coax and correct. And if you take too much, it doesn't work. And so when I, when I realized it was easier for me to like put the thing in, get it hot, hit it a few times, put it back in, get it hot, hit it a few times, do less, but more effective each time. Things went smoother and I, I really stole it from him. And I'm like, man, I, that's, that's a way of describing how I work a dog. Just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. And I, it's, much, it's much more effective. It feels maybe not as productive, but it is. And in the big picture, yeah. I think that's what people have to recognize is we, we're not sprinting. We're, we're, we're setting up a marathon here. So yeah. like mindset, again, it's a mentality. I, th- I think that's something that, again, so many people struggle with, or it's a challenge for, for all, it's just human nature. We want to yeah. take these big leaps and it's hard to, it's hard to do the little thing. It's harder, I should say, to do the little thing day after day over time and see those giant results yeah. that, that compound over time versus being in the mindset say, all right, we're going to make a big giant leap in, in our training today and take a right. giant step. You know, it's just, that is not sustainable. Whereas coaxing and correcting is mm-hmm. sustainable. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what makes it even harder is today's dogs are so good. And so right. they, I do think dogs have, have been on an incline, like in the time, the short time that I've been doing this, I've seen, they've gotten better and they continue to get better and they continue to get better. And if you look at it, bigger picture, 50 years, a hundred year chunks, they're better. They're, there's no right. question about it. And what makes it hard is because these dogs are so good, it is very difficult for people, especially people that have not done it a lot, to recognize and realize when they do these spectacular things at such young ages, not to get so excited and push, not to get so, because we just want to keep going. And it, mm-hmm. I don't blame you, but I always tell people, trust me. And, and again, you know how many times my dad told me, trust me, listen to me, you know, you know how many lessons I've learned or been told from people I worked with and had way more experience than me that have said to it. And then I said, nod my head. Oh yeah. Okay. And then 15 years, 10 years later, I realized, ah, oh, that conversation that guy told it. me that it, mm. it, you don't, you don't know it until you go through it. So I can, but anyway, the, these dogs are so 
so good that it, it pushes people. And people send me videos of dogs doing stuff and they're having an issue and they start explaining to me what they're doing and all that they've done. And, and then, they, then they tell me that the dog's 16 weeks old and I, I go, you're doing stuff with that dog that I won't be doing for months. Yeah. And it's not that my dog can't do it. It's that she doesn't need to do it. It's, we'll get in. And so, but it's really hard to, it's hard to slow that excitement. But the problem is, is these people will get frustrated because the, the, the wheels will come off and then you're stuck. And if you're not careful, you create, you can create some real, real bad habits there that, that become a lot more work down the road to fix than they would be if you just pump the brakes a little bit and, and let it develop, you know? Yep. Yeah. I, I was laughing when I was listening to your episode with Bob and Nick and you, you really distilled that when you said, if I don't f- this up, I won't have to fix it. <laughs> so much easier. Yeah. That was a fun, that was a fun one. And I, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm a, I, I will say this. It takes a lot longer to fix it, fix something that you, that you make that mistake early on with. It's way easier. Just don't do it in the first place. But yeah. it's way hard to explain that to people because I've I've done it enough, I, and that's just it. You got to experience it. So, but it's it is a, it's one of those things that you you just you gotta you, you do have to experience it. And the hard part is is for some people that only do you know, there's a lot of people that probably won't have five six dogs in their whole life. Yep. You know, and so, and that's where I that's where I feel like my hope is to help our hope our 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 hope with what we're doing is to help those people get through those dogs with a little more enjoyment. I, hey, I had a, first, my first dog was almost the last dog, like, but I was really little and we had a, my family got it and we, we didn't do shit with it. And it was yeah. an absolute terror. And it was like <laughs> one day people came and took it. Like my parents gave it to people that lived out in the country. It was devastating to me. I was crushed. Like, did it just have no structure? It was like kind of a wild dog or what? Absolute what? wild animal. Yeah. I mean, it was a Dalmatian <laughs> and it was like oh, wow. out of control. And it was right after 101 Dalmatians. I mean, this is early, this is mid eighties. And, <laughs> and it, it turned into an absolute terror. And it was, it was, it was heartbreaking for me. And I was so upset with my parents and I was so, I mean, it scarred me. Okay. Yeah. So it took, but it took, it took probably, it probably took five years at least before my parents would, were willing to get us another dog. And I don't blame my parents for it at all because we just weren't ready for it. I mean, I was like seven or eight years old and my sister was a year older than me. My other sister's two years younger than me. So we didn't, we didn't do anything with the dog. And my parents didn't, weren't dog people. They didn't, they didn't do anything with it either. Well, it wasn't fair to the dog. And so I don't want to have anybody go through that. So it's, it's really, it's really, um, and, and, and to be honest with you, the stuff we're doing isn't very complicated and it's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I get energy and I get fueled by te- a message. Like I'll get, a, I'll get a bunch of messages that are people that say, you know, first dog, second dog, whatever it is. And they show them laying on their, they show them laying on their place in their, in their house. Or at, I just posted something. There was a guy that sent me, I don't know who he was, but he sent me a picture and he's at his camp. And I post a lot of pictures at my camp and the dogs are on place. And he sent me this picture of his dog laying on, on his place at camp. And he said, man, this is a game. It's a total game changer for me. Well, how can I not get fired up about that to help? Mm-hmm. That's all I want to do is give more people that experience, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, and again, if you're if you're lined up to get your first bird dog, you're probably not envisioning your dog laying calmly and composed oh. on his place, and you're not recognizing how important and valuable that is until you get said bird dog and you know it's it's how many how many but those are those are important pieces to it now i would say if there was like a takeaway there kind of dovetailing on what you're saying it's even though there's probably people that told me otherwise it's mainly jerry coulter you know this isn't a race you know and i I don't i don't feel like i'm it's just you felt i felt pressure that i was i was gonna miss things right i didn't want to mess up so like that was that was where the where all of my thinking was, I don't want to miss out on this op- development opportunity to train Hartley to do this or do that. And I now know like none of that pressure needed to be there, yeah. but it, it probably was just one of those things where I had to go through it one time. But if I was, if, if somebody's out there and they have their first pup and they're kind of having those thoughts, talk to somebody like Jeremy, talk, talk to me, you know, I can, I could walk you through sort of my experience and it's, it is not a, it is not a sprint. You've got plenty of time and there's no need to rush most of this stuff because again, much of it is not complicated and you're better off doing it right the first time than, than rushing and speeding ahead. Yeah. And understanding they're pretty durable. These things are, these things are pretty resilient resilient dogs. And, and I just listened to, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I feel like there's I, I enjoy the, I spend a lot of time in the truck, so that's part yeah. of it. But I feel like there's a lot of things that I can pick up on. And I, I listened to, it was actually a, it was a Bob Owens podcast, but it was with another guy that he was interviewing. Um, very different style and, and very different end um, goals, I think, with the dogs. But I was listening to it. And I, this is where I think you have to be careful too, because you have to understand like, not everything everybody does is the same as what, what you're doing. And so there was a, they were talking about, and it just, it struck me because I've got two puppies right now that, that, that I'm keeping back for clients and I'm training um, out of one of our breedings and they're labs and they're, they're just over four months old right now. And they're very different. They've got pretty different personalities, but um, like them, I'm really enjoying them. And in that podcast, I heard the guy talking about um, some of the stuff that with a four month old dog running really big stuff, like big hundred, multiple hundred yard, 200 yard retrieves. <laughs> I'm sitting there laughing to myself and I'm going, fuck, if I listen to this and I didn't know anything about dog training and I got this four month old dog right now, I would be just freaking out going, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong yes. with my dog? I don't have the right, I'm telling you right now. So I'm doing a fraction of the level of difficulty and volume and scalability and all that stuff. I'm just, I'm just doing it on a much much smaller level, but what the hell does it matter at four months? And I'm not saying he's doing it wrong. That's what he does with his dogs. I'm not, what I'm doing with my dogs isn't wrong either, but I'll tell you right now, talk to me in two years because I'll be really happy with where my dog is in two years. Like it, but it's going to take me a little time to get there. And will it take me two years to get, to the next level or get to where he's doing. No, but we have to be so careful about this idea of the time. And, and, you know, that conversation that we had with Nick and Bob on Nick's podcast, yeah, um, that had a different kind of subject. But one of the things that came up, I hope, which became clear was time is way overrated. 
when it comes to dogs. I wrote an article called Great Trainers Know No Time. And so that's hard to explain to a professional trainer because what do they base everything on? Time. Like, how do they get paid? How long do you have the dog? How, how, do they, how do they get people to send dogs to them? How quickly can I turn this around? How quickly can I do this? And it's a business thing, and I get it, and I have no problem with it. But I, ha- I think people have to realize, if you're not sending your dog off to a trainer, and you're doing it yourself, you got all the time in the world. Yeah. Like, what, what, that's, the, that's the most stress-relieving thing people can ha- can, un- can start to understand these days because everything we do is so stressed out with time. And I look at it now and I go, uh, there's a, 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 I've gotten way better at it um, in the last 10 years probably than the, than the first 10 to 15 years of working with dogs. I've realized that this time thing is just not that important to me anymore. And I, I more recently have adapted this idea of I'm going to do a lot less. I'm just going to do it better. And my buddy says, don't do more, do less, better. Mm-hmm. And that's what, how he described a dog that I did kind of recently. And in, in that dog was, turned out, okay, great. This <laughs> fantastic dog. Yeah. I just saw him the other day and he's just, he's, he's incredible. It's just a very, he's exactly what I want in a dog. And it's probably, I probably did the least amount of stuff with him, but I just did it really well. And I just did it very patiently. Yeah. And, and in the end, I'm getting way better results that way. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I love that. And, and I mean, part of your ability to do that is likely the previous 10 to 15 years of trial and error. You know, totally. again, it's just you can't you can't necessarily force this stuff or flip a switch. But I mean, to your point, like information is nobody's problem anymore. We have all the information in the world. The challenge is distilling it into something that mm-hmm. fits with you and works with you. Yeah. And and like you said, you know, 
these podcasts are great. I listen to many as well and have learned a ton, but there's always the risk of sort of hearing something out of context and just not understanding the situation that that person is in. So if you just take everything with a grain of salt and recognize that somebody else's situation is not your situation, but try to take the fundamental concepts of what they're saying and then sort of view that through the lens of your own situation, that's where you can gain a lot of value but there's risks in involved with just hearing something or like you said those timelines you hear an age you hear a timeline that kind of stuff can be treacherous yeah and you you should you it being a trainer as a trainer i think one of the things that i need to get i need to continue to develop it and and folks that are listening should should embrace the idea of it i think is you got to really be able to sift through and when i say that i mean i don't mean like some stuff, some stuff, yes, discard, discount, don't, it's not applying to you. But like the people that are completely going in a different direction um, with their dogs than what I'm going with my dogs, there's an awful lot I can learn from them. And, and it's not necessarily replicate though. It's figure out, and I've asked, Jerry Coulter's been really good influence on me. And, and one, of the, one of the things that he has influenced me on is questioning stuff. Like he questions me on everything. Everything we talk about, he'll ask me question about it. And, and, and it, early on in our relationship, he said to me, don't take offense to it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking you like, because I, I'm not asking it to challenge you. I'm asking yeah. it to understand it more. And so he made me start thinking about that and going, I should think about that a little bit. I should think about everything, everything I'm doing. How come everything everyone else is doing? How come? And so when I look at some of the styles of training that I observe, and I try to observe as much as possible, I might, I might better understand their reasoning for it and then figure out what it looks like and how those two things connect and then go, well, how could I do, where could that help me if it could help me and figure out how to fit it in or mold it in or apply it into what I'm doing and then just try that a little bit. And, and, but, but I just, I think that the, there is an issue out there where it's like, sometimes we just don't, we don't observe enough stuff. We don't see enough variety and we yeah. get so set in the idea. And this is a marketing thing. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really, um, I'm a student of marketing stuff because I, I need to get better at it. I need to, it's a, it's a successful, it's a part of a successful business. And when I say marketing, I don't mean like snake oil. I mean like, Marketing is a really important, it's in a positive way. <laughs> like it should be used positively. So, yeah. but I see some stuff that's marketed and it's it, the marketing part of it. The, if the message is it's the, it's the end all be all, it's the, it fixes everything. I think you have to recognize like that's not necessarily always true and you got to sift through it, but pick up parts of it and let some of it stick. I always yeah. laugh about it. I, I've used this line because of a friend of mine that I used to work with. He's passed away now, but he, he went on a, he, he used to go on like, he's a big stones guy. And like, he saw the stones a hundred times and he toured, he went on tour. Like he was in their bus. Like, like he, yeah, yeah. he got wow. into all these clubs. He climbed a mountain with Keith, with Keith Richards. I mean, he, <laughs> he did, he saw some pretty incredible stuff. And one time he was talking to um, Keith Richards about a song I don't know what song it was, but it was about some song and the lyrics were deep or, and my buddy, you know, they're half stoned and drunk and they're looking at each other and he goes, tell me about that song. And 
he looked at him. He said, man, I picked up a lot of barnacles along the way. That was his answer. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's a great line. You know, like <laughs> as a dog trainer, just pick up barnacles along the way and, and let some stick. And then some don't. And that's how yeah. I, that's just how I've, I feel like um, I'm in the, in the long run, in that marathon mentality, that's how I'm going to be the best. That's how I'm going to get to be the best me. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I think it, it sort of aligns with how I think about things. And you said that, you know, your dog training methodology, if you wanted to call it that you, you just pick up things from here and there and you, you blend it all together in, in Jeremy's way. Yeah. And there's, there's actually a great book by David Epstein called range, which is not about dogs, but it's about a, having a range of experience and a, sure. and a depth and, and a breadth of knowledge. Uh, my buddy, Mike, um, recommended that to me just because my career path has been so, yeah. so much like that. But I mean, I, again, I, I appreciate that sort of thing. And I learn I learn things at each point in my life and, and then you apply those to other areas and that, and that book mm-hmm. really kind of connects all of those dots. But, um, Keith Richards is, is hitting the nail on the head there. <laughs> that, right. That's just, I mean, that's just it. <laughs> totally. And it's, and it, it, and, it, and it's just a cool, like when you take a step back from it, like I get pretty intense about stuff. I get I get I work. It's kind work of freeing pretty, to say like, hey, I can explore other areas and different things, and I can pull something out of that. Yeah. I'm not wasting my time here, right? Right. And with the dogs, for me, that's where that freeing like the, it, it sounds kind of cheesy, but like it's art to me. Working with a dog is when I watch people work dogs well. And and there's I've I've just met so many people that are so good, and and they're real handy. They just got a good hand. They, you can just see it. You can just, and, and I, I think it's a thing of beauty. (laughs) Like it sounds weird, but it it is an art. And, and I, I think it's like music. I think it's like, it's like a lot of this stuff that I don't know shit about, but when you see someone that does it really well, you know, they're doing it really well. And that's really, to me, that draws me in. And, um, my business part of it, is the majority of my day. My family is the majority of my day. We're, we're, we're chasing our tails all over the place. But the, but the dogs, you know, I'm training right now. I've got this little setter right next to me, quiet. She finally settled in. You, I don't know if you heard her squeaking a little bit in the beginning. I, I but, heard that a little bit. <laughs> and now she's settled in. And, and so the, the, it's a release for me. It's a, it's a way for me to, um, to stay grounded but it's also a lesson for me to go, why don't you have this mindset more in daily life stuff? Because if you did, things would probably go better. It'd be a more enjoyable ride. And so it's an under underappreciated thing is the word patience. And yeah, yeah. everything takes it. Uh, building a business takes it. Building a dog takes it. Building a house takes it. Like you put, put it in any, any context and, and those who are patient, but that's a, that, that's something that doesn't come real natural to a lot of people, myself included. Yeah. And so it's been something that I've had to, I've had to experience it. I've had to walk it. I've had to have, I had to, I've had to feel it. And that's where, that's where for me, dog training is not so much mechanical. Uh, there are mechanics that are super important, but there is also a balance between mechanics and feel connection and trust. And when you combine those three, when you combine those three things, you can have a really nice dog. When you have good mechanics, you can have a really nice dog. When you do all of them together, you have great dogs. 
And that's always what I'm kind of going after. Well, we got a little deeper into conceptual stuff than I had outlined, but that's the beauty of this. And uh, I appreciate that. But I do want to, I want to shift a little bit at this point and talk really retrieving flushing dogs for upland hunting. And I'm going to start with a super dumb question. Retrievers and flushing dogs, do you differentiate between, because in my mind, I kind of like when I say flushing dog, I mean labs, I kind of mean them all. But yeah. I don't know if that's incorrect or like, is there a, is there a separation there? Yeah. I think then now you're just going back to that terminology stuff, like de- <laughs> right, defining <I> the defining, <laughs> you know, how, what word are you applying where? But, um, so, and it's a really good question. Cause I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way. I think that, you know, the idea of retrieving or retriever versus flushing dog, like I think retrievers flush and flushers retrieve. So yeah. I think they're both overlapping. I think it's how, how people prefer to use it in a, in a sentence. But like, I think the confusion might come in, like there's a difference between bird dog stuff and gun dog stuff. That's how I define something. Gun dog stuff to me is like waterfall, you know, like ducks and geese. That's a gun dog. A bird dog in, in this community that you're in is a pointing dog. It's not a, it's not a lab. It's not a spaniel. It's a bird dog. Well, there's a, I think bird dog from a retriever standpoint is the flushing part of it. That's how, kind of how I define it. Mm-hmm. So, but do you, you know, do they do, so I don't separate them, but I think that there's, it goes back to, it's the same dog, but it's what skills are you honing? Like, how are you developing the dog? And so my flushers are my retrievers um, and vice versa. But I think that, so, so I don't know. Does that answer? Does that answer? What yeah, it it does. At? It does. I mean, I I had some some thoughts about, and you you kind of got a bunch of other que- like not questions but observations in my mind in the upland world. You know, it's it's just like like however you, wherever you want to throw this net, then we can yep. sort of get inside that net and start compartmentalizing. We've got pointing dogs and flushing dogs, or you might have in the pointing dog side, you might have. Like some people would say pointing dogs, setters, pointers, but then you've got the versatile dogs, right, you know, another right. category. And that, and mm-hmm. this, the point of this is definitely not to how much can we label and categorize. I just wanted to know if there was anything no. that I was missing there uh, in lack of understanding. But again, when I say flushing dog, I'm kind of envisioning lab, springer, any, any dog that is flushing bef- instead of pointing. Yeah. But that's a great point you bring up because I just think that we really get bad with trying to be parts of clubs. Like yeah. Everyone wants to be a part of the club, man. And I think that that is one of the things. So I look at it, and I've never thought about it this way in direct conversation. But like I'm thinking about it right now, and, and I'm going, hunting dogs. They're all, they're all hunting dogs. Yeah. But yeah. how are we going to hunt them? So like my lab, I can duck hunt with. I'm going to hunt that differently than if I'm grouse hunting. And so they're the same dog. I'm bird hunting with them, but it's two different skill sets. And so the, the quartering and flushing is a little bit different than the steadying, lining, handling, uh, which, would, which would be my kind of gun dog stuff. So, but boy, we do get, we are guilty of being, <laughs> wearing, the, wearing the badge, you know, like I'm part of this club or that club, but. Yeah. All right. So with that in mind or established or not established, uh, I want to hear from you just because, again, this is sort of an undercover topic on on this show. Let's talk flushing dogs. And we now know what I mean by that. Flushing dogs for upland hunting, kind of 101, like from your perspective, somebody says, hey, I'm going to get a lab. Uh, I want to I'm going to primarily upland hunt. 
what mm-hmm. is my training going to look like? And however you want to break that down, you know, we don't need to talk timelines or anything, but like yeah. sort of the phases of, of how are you developing a, a flushing yeah. dog for upland hunting? So for me, I am, I, because I'm doing everything with them, I'm going to train them the same way. Um, but I think if you, if you don't have aspirations, if you're not going to duck hunt with them, it doesn't matter. It's just, but you'll have this. I think the skill sets are really important at the base. So like, I, I'm a big believer in this foundation and I, I stress the idea of my background is construction. And I always stress the idea of first thing you learn in construction is you got to have a solid foundation. If you don't, all the work you put into it is for not. So I don't think it's any different with a dog. I think that the nice part about that is all the extra stuff you get beyond the, we always have this, we always have this view or vision of what we want in the end in the field. And it's the, you know, if it's the pointer, it's the beautiful point. If it's the retriever, um, duck hunting is lining out and picking a blind. If it's a flusher, it's casting and quartering and flushing and either hupping or sitting. Like if you're a spaniel guy, I like, I like my labs to sit to the flush too. I like them at least to be steady to the flush. They don't have to sit necessarily, but I like them to stop. But it's that and then you making the retrieve. And like we always have this grand vision of the end game. Mm-hmm. I think that in order to get there, like if we look at this as like a, a, uh, an analogy, it's like a really long chain. And that, that beautiful picture is at the end of that chain. Well, there's a hell of a lot of links that you got to have to get there. And if you're missing links or you don't have the links in the first place, the chain is really useless. And so the base of that chain is also the stuff that I need to go camping. <laughs> I mean, it's June right now and uh, 4th of July is coming up. And we're going to take, like my, my family's going up, we're going camping here, fishing here, walk, you know, doing stuff at soccer games and volleyball and all this stuff i my little setter i had to take down downtown milwaukee for the first few months because i had volleyball tournaments that i had to go to <laughs> well, I had to, so what did i have to do i had to be able to bring her with and i had to be able to take her on a leash and walk her around in the city and let her go to the bathroom so the foundation is what allowed all that stuff to happen it's also the stuff that's going to ha- let all this, the good stuff happen in october and i think people don't realize that they, we get so excited about put, taking these dogs out in the field and work, 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 put bird introduction in, gun introduction, all this stuff. That's such a small part of the big equation. It's important. Don't get me wrong. You need that stuff too. But even if you have that stuff, if you don't have a dog that comes when you call them, if you don't have a dog that heals well, if you don't have a dog that you can just tell to sit down for a minute, I got to go do all this other stuff. I got to go unpack the truck. I got to do, if you can't, if you can't do that, boy, it's a real pain in the ass. Yeah. And so I think for me for, to train a, a flushing dog, it's the same foundation that I'm going to put in my gun dog. It's the same foundation that I'm going to put in my pointer. It's the same foundation I'm going to put in a tracking dog if I'm going to use them for game recovery. All, all of it's the same. And I think it can be, I think it can be boiled down to a few simple commands. Uh, heel to me is probably the most important. And the reason I feel that is because it seems like everything we want dogs to do at some point, we're having them do it at a distance. Like the problem is, is when you start getting distance, things start to break down. It becomes, there's erosion. And so there's, it's this, it's this, the crispness goes away. It's one of the distractions. There's other distractions. Distractions are what kind of take away from the end goal. And so distance is one of those things. So why is heel so important to me? Because it's in my back pocket. 
I mean, they're right here. They're on my side. And I feel like if I can't get them to do stuff perfectly right next to me, I'll never be able to get them to do it out at a distance. So heal, this is something that I have found value in. So with my, with my retrievers or flushing dogs, heal has always been key. Um, and I like dogs that really connect. That's where I connect with them. So like I don't do horse stuff. I really, I study horse stuff. I don't do it. I wouldn't mind probably playing with it a little bit, but <laughs> I, I subscribe to some horse training stuff and I have watched hours and hours and hours of it. And I find it to be really interesting. But a lot of it is, t- is groundwork with a horse. And I look at a lot of my stuff with a, with a hunting dog is groundwork. And it's all right here. And I can do it in the yard. I can do it in the house. I can do it in my driveways. I can, you can do it. And I trained a hell of a dog in a, uh, on a soccer field when I lived in town. So the excuse that you don't have, I've got a really nice setup now with lots of opportunities here. Sure. But I trained some really nice dogs living in the city. So I just don't, I don't you, guys, you can't make excuses for, for yourselves. You can do this stuff if you get creative. And I think that that heel that heel thing is it allows for us to get their eyes. So I get dogs to look, look to me. And if you watch, if you watch a lot of times when I'm working dogs, I, I'm, they're look, they're kind of, they're almost peeking out of their corner. They like heel, heel to me is not taking dogs for walks. I think people get confused and go that, Oh yeah, I, I'll walk them on the leash. That's heel. No heel is a position. Like heel means you stand right here. And when I move, you're still right there. And when I turn, you're still right there. And so it's being it's an in a, attention thing too, right? They're paying yeah. attention to you. Yeah, it's they're they're hooked in, and so they're looking at. They're always kind of peeking up out of their right. I heal my dogs always on the left. I'm right-handed, so I always heal my dogs on the left, and for for gun reasons, I'm going to be shooting off to the right. Dogs on my left, I know always. I always want them in the same spot because I want to always know where they are. I don't want to have to look for them. I can't have a lead. I'm not going to. It, the lead's just going to get in the way. So hunting-wise, I want this dog, I always say, in my pocket. And it'd be my, for me, it'd be on my left-hand side. But you'll end up seeing, like, between their shoulder and their ears, let's say, that's where I want them lined up with my left knee. And you'll see them kind of peeking out of their right, their right eye up at me. And they're looking. And they're, they're, all, they're, they're conscious of what's in front of us, mm-hmm. but they're always looking up to me. And so what ends up happening is when I first start out, I'm always looking at them. Like when I first start with these little puppies, I'm, I'm peeking at them, I'm peeking at them, I'm peeking at them. And all of a sudden they start peeking at me and we start looking at each other. We're working together now. And so I, I feel like with my setter, heel was very important. And I kind of went against the grain. And, because, and the reason I did it was because the retrievers is a must for me. My flushing dogs and my retrieving dogs have to be really good at heel. And I don't want to think about it. Because if I have to think about it, I'm not thinking about the other stuff that I'm trying to do with them. So it needs to become so second nature. It needs to become this, if you're typing, it's like home roll. Like you're, you know where your letters yeah, are. Yeah. You just, like <laughs> that's home roll. So I don't want to think about home roll. I just want to feel it. Well, that's what, that's what I want these dogs in the heel position at. So when, I start, when I'm able to do that with them, like with Makina, her recall wasn't the best. Like she, she recalled pretty well, but she's a little bit, she doesn't have that tendency. The labs and the retrievers really kind of want to be with you. They, they like being by you. Mm-hmm. She had this little bit different feel about her where she kind of liked being on her own a little bit. And that's intentional. Yep. So with her 
to call her back to me wasn't always as effective. But I learned very quickly that we worked on heel quite a bit. And it was on lead to start out with, and then it went to off lead, and I like to incrementally transition that. I like to get off lead as quick as possible. As long as it's good, as long as the heel work is good, I don't want them on a lead because I, want, I don't want that to be the crutch. So when I started working with her, she got really good off lead pretty early. And when it ended, what I found out was if I called her back to me, she'd have this little standoff with me where she'd look at me and she knew I wanted her back to me. She might be 15, 20, 30, 40 yards away and she'd look at me and I could just see it in her voice. She was going to run. And I, <laughs> oh, I'm, so, and I'm sitting there and I know it's coming. You can read the dog. And I, if I said here, off she'd go. So what I ended up saying was heel. And as soon as I hit, said heel, she turned, she came, she swung into position like it was a game. And boom, she's in heel position. So I started with her. I quit using recall. I just tell her heel. And she comes so naturally into heel position. It's just helped me out a lot with her. With my... So that's an extra value of what, of having what, it. But, what, do you, what what do you think it was? It just something weird with with the word here. Like what what was the dynamic going on there? It was well. I think what it was was the distance. She's at fifteen yeah. twenty yards from me, and she realizes I have zero control of her at that point. Right, right. Like I don't use the collar. You know, I don't I don't use the collar. So like at that point, I can't touch her, and I'm not using a check cord with her. I don't. I I'm, I kind of avoid check cords. I think those things become crutches. So. She's out at a distance and she's looking at me and going, she's kind of flipping me the bird a little bit. I don't like mm-hmm. that, right? Well, what, what happened early on was we start, I started healing her when she was 12 weeks old. I mean, she was tiny. And, and we filmed it all. We did, a, we did a whole training series with her. We filmed it. I don't know. There's a lot of episodes of it. Yeah. But she's really little. And she's on a lead and she's in great position and she's off lead pretty early too and healing really well. And because it goes back to this idea of when, when we're raising kids, she was a kid, she still is a kid, but she was a really little kid back then and she was very shapeable. And so when I started telling her from the very beginning, heal means stand next to me and we'll go for a walk. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't a bad thing. It was usually right. connected to something she really enjoyed. We're going for a walk. When I would say that, it was second nature to her. It was like Pavlov ringing a bell. Like when Pavlov, it was classic conditioning. Pavlov used to get dogs to drool when he would ring a bell because he timed it out properly with feeding them and feeding them created the saliva. So he just did it. He just, he just tricked them into thinking and it yeah. happened so many. When I go outside and tell my little dogs, I, I tell them to hurry up. Oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So I take out little puppies and I take them outside. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I say that over and over and over again, and I feel like I have to go to the bathroom, like myself, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because every time I go out, we do it. And so it's, it's this idea of when I said to her, heel, and she's at a distance, heel was stronger than, the, than the, the distraction. And so that becomes behavior. And that's where I look at all of the stuff I'm trying to do is shape it so strong that the behavior is more powerful than the temptation. And so with her, that was just, heel became so good that I could he- tell her to heal from a distance and she'll come to position. Well, and she, and she, I think that's, that's kind of what I was, I was wondering too, is 
when you said heel, she obviously the dog's making a decision at this point. If you said here, she was taken off, right. but heel, she, she decided she did that. And you were maybe still going to go for a walk. Whereas yeah. if you said here, she maybe thought that was going to lead to something she didn't right. want. Right. Yeah. And, and me subconsciously not even recognizing it, but like my tone changes like here, you know, she doesn't come here, here. Like that would have been a natural progression for you. Yep. Well, why would I come to that either? <laughs> like, no, no, thank you. I, why, and why, why do I have to? I don't have to. And I'm 15 yards away from you and I'm way faster than you. So at that point, you know, what do I do? I turn and I go away. I used to go try to get them. And then I go to get them and they run off. And then they go, this is great. All I got to do is stand here and he'll come chase me. And it yep. turns into this just <laughs> downward spiral. And what happens to me? I get more and more pissed off. And now I'm hollering. And now why is she coming back to me? She's not. Why would she come back to me? It sounds like I'm going to punt her when, I get, when she gets back. So it's like, you know, when you take a step back and you realize what it looks like, yep. you understand why they behave the way they do. So, you know, in those situations, a lot of times what I'll do too is um, with her, I just take my lead out. Like her physically seeing me take a leash out, I carry these little slip leads. They're little pocket leads. We make them. Just, I love them. They're just really, really small, lightweight. I put them in my pocket. I have them almost all the time. I've got one sitting here right now. But so I, I take that out and she sees it. She comes running in. I say heel. And she knows that that's part of this thing. Oh, I'll get into heel position. We'll go for a walk. And I might walk two or three steps and turn, two or three steps and turn. And, you know, when we teach heel, I don't go for walks. Like I can get it all done in about a 10-yard circle because the, the beauty of it is getting them to start moving with me. And so now we start talking about at a distance with a flushing dog. I don't want them just running. I want yeah. them moving with me. So if I start to make a turn, I want the dog to kind of cast with me. I want them to quarter with me. You do it with a bird dog too, but the bird dogs are just doing it at a much greater scale. So if I get this connection to happen at one foot, it almost carries itself at 10 feet, at 100 feet, at 300 feet. And the dog, so it's, it's building, that's where I build that initial, I, I kind of call it like hooking in with them. And now they're looking to me. So when they're looking to me at one foot, like looking up at me, well, what are they doing at 15 yards, 20 yards? They're, check, they're starting to check in with me. And it's, you know, at, when they're 12 weeks old and I'm putting them on a lead for the first time, and I, I hate using numbers because someone will look at their calendar and be like, oh, 12 weeks yeah, later, yeah. I start this. Sometimes I do it earlier, sometimes I do it later. But when I start doing it and we start shaping that, at that age, they won't get out that far anyway. Like, I don't need, I need to, sh I need to do this stuff before they're so big and bold that they can get away. Because as soon as they can get away, they recognize very quickly, I don't even have to be by them. And I think, I think that is where some of the confusion comes in, in, in the idea of how do you develop a hunting dog. I think we're so afraid of dampening their natural hunt and their natural abilities. I'm telling you right now, dogs are better than they've ever been, and you can't, you, you can't take it out of them. I can't. There's, there's nothing I can do that's going to stop a dog from wanting to hunt those birds. It's been programmed into them for. Yep. generations and generations and generations what i what and that comes naturally to them what doesn't come naturally to them is healing the <laughs> what doesn't side. come naturally yeah. to them is sitting still and being patient and not being antsy what doesn't come naturally to them is the ability for me to be able to say 
No, leave that tempting thing and come with me this way. So with my training, with all that stuff, I'm, I'm doing that shit from the beginning. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it doesn't, and it's such small increments with these little dogs. It's, you know, my retrievers make, in the, let's say the first six months, as long as they're not teething, I make a few retrieves with them when they're little. But I make so few retrieves. I find out that they'll retrieve. I make sure they'll retrieve. They all do. And when they, once they start retrieving, I got one right now that, that probably will make, she's, it's of these twins, these sisters. One of them has a lot more natural desire to do it. One of them is a little bit, a little pokey with it yet. And with both of them, I bet you I haven't made a dozen retrieves with them. They're four yeah. months old. They're retrievers. Well, guess what? It's their last name. I don't have to train them to do it. <laughs> I simply, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slowly start working on um, developing a little bit of steadiness with them. I, I, I'll, I'll, one of them in particular, the other one, I won't because the other one doesn't have the, the goal so far. So I'll just let her go. I'll, I won't ask her to be steady. I won't ask you to be super calm. The other one, she's showing me that she's got a lot of, she's got a lot of drive. So I'll start to temper that a little bit. I'll just start kind of shaping that. When you're doing your first retrieves, does a does a retriever guy start in the hallway with a tennis ball like you like all us pointing dog guys read about? <laughs> uh, uh, very much so, but like okay. <laughs> formally, yes. Informally, no. Like my dogs, when they come, when they start walking around and picking stuff up, that's their first retrieve. Like they're picking shit up all the time. Yeah, and and so as they carry stuff, when they're little, in my family kind of all we all are kind of on the same same page with all this stuff which is important consistency and repetition that forms habits well consistency amongst your pack is real important too so mm -hmm. like everyone in our family kind of understands these rules that we live by when these dogs when these little puppies pick stuff up i get down and i encourage them to bring it to me like they they that's a retrieve and so the first what the first formal retrieve yeah get in the hallway close the doors and e eliminate opportunity to fail but you're never going to not run into an opportunity to start shaping the retrieve prior to that. Cause I don't usually yeah. do that super early. I don't, don't really miss those to. natural opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Those are the ones that create, cause the dog's not going to run off in the hallway. So we all mm -hmm. know that, but that's the session. That's the, that's the training. That's the, you know, yep. five minute session that you're going to do. If you have pups picking stuff up prior to you doing that and you start hollering at them, no, 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 no. Don't grab that. If you start chasing them and they're faster than you and they run away with it, that's the training. That's your first session. And so you're starting to shape it. And that goes back to don't fuck it up in the first place. Like if your life, your job is so much easier if you don't. But what people don't realize is those opportunities are just as important or maybe more important than the hallway. Because those happen more often and those happen first. And first stuff is real important. And that's having this bigger picture of, that's having an understanding of the bigger picture of our training to realize like there's going to be a lot of opportunities that we can start pushing them down the right direction or the wrong direction. Um, and it's just going to happen. And you have to, you have to, it's a, it needs to be a reflex. And so I, I talk about training wise, I don't like compulsive behavior. I, there's, there's a whole bunch of retriever trainers that, that they they're looking for compulsive behaviors in dogs. This is the, if you listen to the Bob interview, like that's a lot of that stuff. It's a different approach to training. I don't want compulsive behavior. 
Look up the look up the definition of the word compulsive. I don't want that. I want well, reflex. Give me an example of in 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 a dog. What's a compulsive behavior that a trainer might be looking for? So a lot of times, like what they'll do is um, when it comes to the retrieve, and this ties back to the retrieve part. So trained retrieve or forced fetch or whatever the definition is. The compulsive behavior is to reach out and snatch. Like they want that snappy. They want to reach out and grab it. Well, you you see you get the same. I understand why they're doing it. I don't need it. And, and I don't want it, quite honestly. I think it's undesirable. You also see compulsive behavior with treat training. I don't do a lot of treat training. Now, I, I do use food. Like these little puppies, I've used some food to, to motivate them to come to me early on. Like I'll give them a little piece of kibble when they come to me. I'll give them a piece of kibble. Give them a couple pieces of kibble, and all of a sudden, I start petting them. And they, they understand. And it's a positive thing when I come to them. But that food is a pretty, pretty powerful motivator with some young dogs. So I do use it for that stuff. But... The, the idea of using treats all the time for training, I've had, I know some people that do it and I've got my daughter's four and we, they, one of the, we were around one of their dogs and, and it's, it's a very nice dog, but it's, it's real, real treat trained, like fanny pack style. Like you're always, you're always yeah. bringing, you know, always got the kibble. And my daughter went, my daughter is a dog lover and she went up to pet and she was told, no, no, don't, don't do that with her. You go up because, and, and she looked at my daughter, she's been around a lot of dogs. She goes, how come? And because you put your hand up there, she'll bite at your hand. Well, she thinks you got a treat. And so that's compulsive behavior. Yeah. And so the last thing I want is to bring my dog around some kids and have my dog snatch out at somebody's hand because some parent's going to sue me because they're going to go, your dog bit my right. kid. Well, no, it wasn't really biting you, but it, it's been so programmed that it's when someone puts their hand up to me. compulsive response versus yeah. the dog thinking and, and agreeing to it. Right. Yeah, I got you. And so I like this idea of, I love, so you bring up a very good point there, thinking. I want them to think about it. I want them to be so composed, they think about every decision they make prior to doing it. And what will end up happening, and when they're young especially, because as long as I'm doing a good job of instructing and they're thinking through their options and then they make the right choice and then they get rewarded for it or they make the wrong choice and they get corrected for it because I'm not just a positive guy. Like I, yep. I think you got to tell them no when they do it wrong. I think you got to tell them yes or right when they do it right. And when they do it, they thought about it. Then they understood the consequence. They thought about it. They understand the consequence. They thought about Pretty soon you do that stuff enough times, it becomes a reflex because it's happened so often and it's so, so right. It's been right enough times. They just do it naturally. And so that's what I'm really after with my dogs. I don't want it. I, I use the word bribery. I don't want it done out of bribery and I don't want it done out of fear. I don't want it done out of, because I think you, you don't get the best, you don't get the most out of them with either, yeah. either approach. So I'm always somewhere in the middle, like, People always want to know, again, to this club thing. Everyone wants to be right. part of the club. Are you a positive trainer? Are you a force-free trainer? Are you a... No, I'm none of the above. I'm a little bit of everything, and I'm always trying to figure out how to be in the middle. Yeah. I that's, uh, love that. I, I feel like I'm starting to hear more and more about dogs thinking and and wanting the dog, you know, learning how to learn, thinking for themselves, yeah. teaching them in that way. And I wonder if that's, that's kind of all dovetails with 
what you're saying, you know, dogs are continually getting better and better and they're easier to train in, in some ways, but you have to sort of, you have to understand their capabilities and their mental capacity. Whereas maybe 50 years ago, the compulsive behavior and that, and that sort of thing was, was what folks had to do. I, I don't know. I haven't been around dogs that long, but I just feel like the teaching dogs to think and is, is becoming something that I'm hearing about a lot more. Yeah. And I, I think too, it depends on end game. Like what's your end goals? Yeah, yeah. Because you know, that's where, that's where I probably go a little bit differently than most retriever trainers. And, but I also have a different goal than most retriever trainers. When you start talking about professionals, like the, the games that you're going to play with those dogs, if you're into those games, require dogs to not think. You don't want them thinking. You want them responding to your direction. It's yeah. very robotic. And I think it takes away so much of what I enjoy about it. And that goes back to the idea of them thinking. There, for, for however many years we've been doing this, and we continue to try to do it, improve, their, improve on their genetics, their natural inherent traits. Why, that, to me, is the direction I'm, I'm headed with them, is improve on that and then allow that, allow that to work with them and allow me to work with them to maximize it. As opposed to, um, I actually think that some of the stuff goes the wrong direction with the breeding because at times we're breeding out. We're breeding out some of the things that I think make the better hunter. We're breeding out the like I want for for instance for me if I send a dog out to an area I want the dog to go to the area, get in the general area. I want them to be obedient that way. But then I want to I don't know shit about where the bird is. They do, and so I want to get them in an area and then allow them to be the dog because yeah. that's why I got them. If I, it's if I you know I need that inherent game finding. That's the that's what they bring to me. And so uh, I don't need a robot. I, I need, I need, I need, and that requires trust. So I have to have the trust and the faith in them to be able to put them in an area and then let them do what they do best. I also, it requires trust on their part because they have to believe me when I say go to a spot and then go do what you do naturally. That, now we're starting to talk about a dance. We're starting mm -hmm. to talk about like working together as opposed to this authoritative dictatorship relationship yeah. that man that's not for yeah. me that i i want them working with me yeah all of that again plays into the the conversation and not to make this a hunting dog versus a field trial but just like the differences in those scenarios where mm -hmm. one of them if a competition you have to have certain structure and certain things set up so that the competition is sort of this level playing field and going back to this you know starting with the end in mind what is the actual goal of right. of said event is it to create a better hunting dog but then you take a dog and you place it in a wild bird hunting scenario which is what we often find ourselves talking about on this show is mm -hmm. you i want the dog to go investigate this area but i don't know that there's a target there i don't know that there's a right. so you the dog has to have its head and it has to have that independence. And that's where the lines I think can get, can get blurred. Yeah. And the, and to bring it all circle back, like that's where heels, that's why heels so important to me. You can't, you can't get any closer to each other. And so, but when you get really good and you start feeling each other that close, as you allow them to extend, which is what we want them to do. I want them also working with me. And so that's where you run into, that's where you avoid dogs that work out of range. You know, like my dogs, my dog, you, you start talking about grouse woods, 
you don't want him out that far. I, I can't, I, I can't shooot that far. Yep. Uh, I, I, and it's frustrating to hear birds get up because of my dog out of range. So I really, I look at, and I think dogs, again, it goes back to some of the genetic parts. Dogs have different patterns. Dogs work things differently. Some are more effective than others. I, I, I actually think that, and I should, I, in the limited amount of comparison that I've had, I do think that the, one of the most effective ways to kill grouse is over good flushing dogs. Like they just, Every time I send a group of guys out with a couple of my labs, they come back with more birds than I do with my setter. And <laughs> it's not that they necessarily, I think they have better opportunities. I think the dogs give them better opportunities. Now, I have a pretty young setter, a very young setter. Yeah. And so I, I, that's why I say my, my experience is probably limited there, and I, I, I have to be careful. But it's hard to argue the effectiveness of a dog that will work within a really good range of the gun. And the other part is, is, I, you will not beat the ability to recover every every bird. Like you're not going to lose birds with these dogs. They're if the bird's dead, they're going to find them. If the bird's wounded, they're going to find them. And I feel like that's just part of their makeup. That's and and, uh, and to me that is a huge value. I I can't. I think that gets under understated at times. Is the idea of when we're hunting like the dog is the best conservation tool around there's there's just no arguing it yeah and the, and a, for me a lab a labrador is built to find game i mean they just they really are they and they and they're built to do it with us and so you know extension of my range with my dogs as a flushing dog is just an extension of good heel work yeah we're gonna have to meet up and 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 try to hunt this fall because I, I keep saying i want to do some more grouse hunting over over flushing dogs sure. which i've done very little of and obviously we've got the northwood setter connection so yeah but again i i wouldn't even sit here and debate you know i've got i've got two setters that obviously i love love grouse hunting with but i i often find myself wondering like what it would be like hunting over a flushing dog that's kind of always in range and giving me different shot because the thing about you know pointy dog goes on point now i gotta kind of do my thing to try to get mm-hmm. myself an opportunity whereas as i've talked about this many times before with guys like fritz heller you know a flushing dog can really send birds right to you yeah. which is not typically what happens with a pointing dog so i always find myself wondering about that as well right i think that's just it i think it is i think it increases the kill of the ability to kill a bird and i and I, I, I honestly, I mean, I used to be kind of a young, bloodthirsty hunter. Like I used to like to shoot. My, my son's 21, and he is that right now. So he's got yeah. one of our labs, and he, his interest is not necessarily in grouse hunting. He wants to shoot a lot of ducks. So he's got a good dog for it. But his dog will work in the woods too. But I, it's not. This isn't a. This is not a a hunt of. Um, for me, it's not a hunt of like numbers it's, it's there's nothing arithmetic about it i i but i think that if if i if it were about numbers i'd be hunting behind my labs like that would be the best way for me to 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 put birds in the bag and the idea of like you're saying angles of shots and stuff that change i have one dog that has a really cool really interesting pattern i really enjoy working with her um upland is probably not her strength but she she's just she's really good and she'll she i've shot more birds coming flying over me like up and over the top of me and i think that her her the way she works a pattern and i know what it's going to be it's very repetitive and i know where she'll go up a tree she'll go right up a trail 
and then cut in and then she'll work her way back to me. And she, a lot of times she'll flush birds to me mm. and it's, it's repeated over and over and it's just not a coincidence. And it, it, the first couple of years of it, I thought, man, it's just, that's pretty interesting. I don't, I don't, I never get that angle of a shot, but with her, it's very consistent. And so it has to do with how she works the woods. And we, I, again, I think that working with the dog is the key here. It's not just following the dog. And that's the hard part about, that's what's interesting to me about the pointing dogs is it's a, it is just such a different feel. The whole hunt is so different, but I'm very, very much ready. You have to be really ready with a flushing dog. I have to, I, I don't necessarily get a lot of time to relax. You can read the dog. You, you can yeah. oftentimes understand there's a, there's a bird in the area. You can be ready. You can tell someone next to you, you know, she's getting birdie. You do get that, you get that quite often, but the problem with it is I find that I'm not, I used to brush, brush, bust a little bit better than I do these days. And I feel like if you really want to get where the, if you want to kill birds, you got to go where the birds are with these flushing dogs, because they're not going to just go out there. They're going to stay kind of with me. So I really end up, um, it forces me to become very a very key part of the hunt as far as putting the dog in the right place. Like I have yeah. to walk the edges with her. I have to go to the right cover and she'll do what she does there. Where the pointing dog for me is pretty relaxing actually. And pretty like, <laughs> pretty like almost, um, it's just a, a totally different mentality and it's very much driven by audible for me. Cause I run around a bell. So it's such an audible experience. I see her not that often, but I see her enough but I always hear her and it's always this idea of listen for the stop. And then is it a check-in stop or is it a bird stop? And, yeah. and then it's go to it if you need to go to it. Where with my, with these flushing dogs, it's, I'm, I've seen them a lot. I mean, I see them, I see them most of the time and they're, it, it's just a diff, it's just a real different experience from a hunting standpoint in the woods, especially. Um, but it's, it's really effective and it's, and it's, and it's really satisfying. And I, now that I work the two together because the, I don't quarter the dogs with a pointing dog, uh, they heal with me. And that's where this transition goes really nicely is when, as long as the heel is good, you can do anything with them that you want. And so I've, I've not stopped hunting my flushing dogs. Once I went to the pointing dog, I just work them together and they, they pick birds up for us. So they're, they're at heel the whole time. And and I, they transition right to that. Now I have some dogs that don't prefer it. I have one in particular that would really like to quarter more than heel, but that's fine. She's fine with it too. She, you know, it's a, it's just a different, and we can mix it up and I do mix it up kind of. So yeah. kind of fun for me. Yeah. Oh, there's, again, there's, there's so many differences and parallels that, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I've, that, that one comes up a lot where, you know, if you have a pointing dog, you can kind of relax, let them do their thing. And l- while I understand that, like, that's not really the way that I hunt because I grew up hunting grouse without a dog. So I'm sort of always on sure. and I'm always like, I'm trying to be on the edge. And so I kind of hunt, like, I almost imagine like I sort of hunt like a guy with a flushing dog, even though I have pointing dogs in the woods and that's just the way that I do it. Yeah. But what I wanted to ask you was. I've had so many so many conversations on this podcast about sort of like the first year of a pointing dog, uh, first mm-hmm. year or two, and mainly based out of my necessity to understand that. But if you have a if you've got a young 
lab, three, mm-hmm. four, five months old. What does the first hunting season look like? What are your expectations? Like, what yeah. does that first season look like? Just depends. I mean, a lot of it is a great question, and a lot of it depends on their age. And so, like, I, I don't hunt them young. I just, there's no value. The risk versus reward for me isn't, isn't there. So I, I always err on the idea of like a later, another season. So like rarely would I hunt a dog. Like my puppies right now are, are four months old. So they won't hunt this year. Now next year, the following fall, they, they were born in February so there'll be a year in February. There'll be a year and a little over a year and a half the following fall. Those those dogs, I'll hunt. I, they'll, they'll be ready to hunt in the fall. Very limited. Like it'll be really controlled stuff, and I'll get them in the woods a little bit. But the the idea by getting them in the woods too early, do you get a little bit more opportunity to introduce a bird and introduce the idea of hunting? Yeah, you do, but what does it? I don't think it gains me much because all it does is potentially create the 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 part that I need most, which is the foundation, the control part. Like, and I don't like to be controlling like rule with an iron fist controlling, but I want to have a dog that is very disciplined. I think that's a really key word in what I do with dogs. Is I need dogs that are really well disciplined, and I think that the word discipline itself is another definition thing. Most times when you start talking about discipline in dogs, I think we think force. I think I hear people talk about that word or hear that word and they immediately go, their mind goes to pressure. And I, I, my, the way I make the, the point or try to make the point is like sports people, like the most, the most disciplined people in Steph Curry is a really good basketball player. He's, he's, maybe the best shooter in the history of the game. And he's super disciplined. Like when it comes to his workouts, when it comes to his, the amount of practice that he does, when it comes to off the court, like you're not going to read about him being arrested. Like he's, he's a family guy. He's, he's, he's really well disciplined. And so when I start talking about analogies, I go, that's the kind of, dis- that's the kind of basketball player I want. Well, I want a bat, I want a, dog that's really well disciplined as well doesn't get into trouble works really hard always there to practice like good good work ethic and so that word to me is what we do over that first year to two years we build in a very disciplined routine of understanding expectations and by putting them in an uncontrolled situation which is the woods i can't control the woods i can't control what happens um, I can't guarantee there's going to be a bird there. I can't guarantee the bird's not going to make s- s- something happen where it's un like the dog doesn't like it. It's uncooperative. You know, pheasant hunting, a rooster with spurs can be the worst thing for a young dog. Some dogs are a little more sensitive and I like dogs that are sensitive. And so uh, fluttering in the, in their face can create an issue. So all of that stuff, I would prefer to have all that things, all those things happen, like in my little test tube world, which is my training grounds. And I do it all over time. And the dog, the dog is what dictates when they're ready to go. Like when they're ready to take a step forward, when they need to go backwards. So I really look at this big, big picture and I go, for me, the first year, 
just, I'm not going to hunt them. Well, what does that do for my pressure as a trainer? I don't have to have them ready for anything because I'm not hunting them anyway. So I went to a, I do some, we just, we do a lot of seminars and stuff. So we'll go to like shows, like expos and hunting expos and stuff. And I did, I do quite a few of them. And I had folks come up. We do this one. It's a waterfall expo. And I had a bunch of people come up to me. This is a couple of years ago. And it's in August. And they're just, you can just see the nervousness in them. They're just, they're talking about, and I had a dog there that was like 16 months old. And they were, and I did a demonstration with the dog. And she's really good. Like, she's a very nice dog. And so they came up afterwards. And they, a lot of people asked these questions about, you know, what's the first season? What do you expect out of her this season? And I just said, well, I'm not going to, I won't hunt her. And they, they looked at, what do you mean you won't hunt her? She's not quite ready. You know, she's, she's doing this, she's doing that. I'll keep training. We'll keep working through it. But no, I, I probably won't hunt her. And if I do, it'll be really limited. And, um, you know, I won't have much for expectations. And so in their eyes, you could literally see relief. Because, and they looked at me and I said, you know, that, that's my plan. Next year, you know, she'll be, she'll be prime next season. Like, we'll be ready. And I'll probably give her enough little bit of experience to, like, transition in. But no, I, no I'm not going to hunt her. And I'd ask them, how old is your dog? Ten months. And they just have this huge relief mm-hmm. that they don't have to hunt the dog that year. And I said, well, I, yeah, I wouldn't even think about it. What's, what are you going to gain? And I, I've heard so many, I've heard a lot of people, and I understand it. there's a lot of different thoughts behind it and i'm not saying right or wrong but there's a lot of people that think it can't hurt to give them experience in the field what's it going to hurt well my question is what's it going to gain like if it doesn't go good you're really going to create potential issues if it goes absolutely perfect what are you really gaining with a kid like if if i take my son when he he's 21 now and if i took him when he was like 10 years old and I took him to a, a basketball camp that was a bunch of high school kids, and he kind of played okay, like he didn't get his ass kicked. What, is he gain, what did he gain from that? Like, does it, is, he, is that going to really excel him into the next five, six years of basketball for him? Probably not. But what probably more likely could have happened is he could get bounced around pretty good. He could get, yeah. he could get so disapp- discouraged and disappointed in the fact that, man, I'm nowhere near what these – like, who knows what could have happened? And all of a sudden, now I've got this kid that goes, ah, he's got these doubts in his mind. I don't need that. So I look at it and I go, let, the, I let, these, get, let these dogs kind of, and the, here's where people will get exci- excited about it, is we talked about it earlier, how good dogs are now and how natural they are. And so we see them do well and we go, I think they're ready. They're not. And so you're not going to, I don't think you're going to gain a whole lot by pushing them or allowing them to get into that game a little early. I think you're, so, I, so for me, the, the easy answer is, I don't have much for expectations that first year. Foundation, build the foundation, build the foundation, build the foundation. I took a dog out this last um, duck season. And you know what? I took him in the grouse woods too. Blue, Blue is this dog that I trained in. I took him in the grouse woods. He healed off, he healed off lead with me. Um, he did it actually all through training season in August, him and two of my older dogs. So the three labs healed with me off lead, and he, he was just a really nice dog. He was about 10 months old at the time, and he would just heal with. When she, Makina would go on point, 
all three of the dogs would I would just have them sit and then I'd walk into the point without them I didn't there was too much to bring the dogs in and try to and I'm trying to focus on Makina and Mm -hmm. so they would just sit I'd walk in if we flushed a bird I'd shoot the cap gun and then I'd come back to them and I'd heal them back heal them on and for him to do that at 10 months for me was wow that's really good um but a lot of people are going to listen to this and be like, you're not doing shit with that dog at 10 months. No, I'm not. Do, don't do more. Do less better. There's not a lot of 10-month-old dogs that could heal off lead that entire time in that type of situation and that excitement and distractions and all that stuff and sit through all that stuff. Yeah. But guess what? This, he, this coming season, he, my buddy actually took him um, to a game farm in like February or March and healed him on some pheasants. Uh, he's got a Northwoods dog too. And so he healed the dog along on pheasants. And I think he even let him flush a few times on some hens. Um, and so, but it was just real, in, real slow progression. Take your time. Like what's the rush, you know? And that, I do think there's a difference between that and the, the pointing dogs. I do think the pointing dogs, do you know how hard it was for me to run that, my young dog in the woods? And, <laughs> and she wasn't even that young. And I, I just cringed at the idea of so it. So bad, thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought, this is such a sin. You can't take these young dogs hunting. It's a little bit different scenario, I think, with, with the pointers. But my retrievers, trust me, I don't care what the score of the game is at halftime. I, and this is the argument that I'll get from so many people that will tell me, oh, I'm so further ahead. I'm so much further ahead of you. I'm, so, I'm running, you know, when it comes to the trials and the competitions, they do some shit with really young dogs and give them ribbons. And I look at it and I go, that's, come on, guys. Like, all you're doing is... <laughs> so you give you give these ribbons to these dogs for doing basically what should be very very simple foundational stuff and i i get it but what i think is interesting is you might be way ahead of me at the end of the first quarter or even halftime but it doesn't matter what the score is then it's at the end of the game that matters. And so when you start talking to me, I look at it and I go, if I, if I rush the dog and I have a, a sketchy first season that creates issues that stick for the next nine years in the field, and I've seen it, I do, we do workshops where people bring dogs that are four, five, six years old. They've got some just really, really undesirable habits. And it's because they hunted them a little early. They ran into these issues. They weren't sure how to handle them. And that that's just sticks. The, stu- the stuff you don't like sticks forever. And it's just, it's a rule, rule with dogs is you can, you can practice the good stuff over and over and over and over again to make it become a habit. They do it wrong one time and it's like they, they'll never, it never goes away. And so I just look at it and I go, I would rather give up an early season of mediocre at best to have eight, nine, 10 years of really good stuff down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, man, if, if we're not, aware of the dangers of comparison comparing yourself to something i mean that totally we all need to be aware you know you don't need to compare yourself to anybody else if you have no need to right you know it's it's great to learn from other people and get and get perspective but when you when you bring that back on you don't need to necessarily put put those things on you and your own dog um is it on you so i i guess i'm gathering by the end of it here that is it unusual in the retriever world to not hunt dogs the first year like that? Or is it kind of 50? Like, what, what's the sense of that that you have? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I would say the majority of people do it earlier. Um, I don't know a lot of people that, that wait. I, but I also think that that might be changing too. I think, because I think that, um, again, I do think it kind of depends on end goals. 
So like if you're, if you're developing, and I'm going to use a saying or a term that I absolutely hate. If you're training just a hunting dog, because I look at it and I go, just a hunting dog? Right. That's what they're for, guys. So I, I, I hate that. I hate it when people say just a hunting dog. But if you're only hunting them, that's what, that's what your goal is with them. I, I do think that people, I do think I probably see a little bit of a, of a shift from a patient standpoint, because I, do, I just think that it kind of depends on the owners too. Like if it's your only dog, I get it. You want to hunt. Like if it's, if it's your only dog, if it's your first dog, if it's the only dog you have, if it weren't for having a dog, I don't know that I would bird hunt much. Like I, mm-hmm. I, to me, I'm not in it to just hunt birds. I like the dog part of that equation. So do I see it, you know, are those people willing to wait? It's probably a harder, it's probably a harder sell to them. I just think that I, and I hope, and maybe it's, maybe it's just a hope thing, but I hope that we're helping people understand a little bit more that patience is okay and actually really good. Um, big picture. So I, I'm, I, I probably am seeing it, but it's probably in my little world too. Like I, I see a very small, um, view of of the of the whole dog world so but but in my circle i do think it's becoming more and more um common for me to 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 hear from people that are okay with the idea of you know what we're just going to take it slow we're going to take it slow and when we're ready we're ready and a lot of it has to do with birth you know birthdays on these dogs you know if you get them i always hope that people that are on the fence and a little little antsy to get rushing i always hope that their puppies are born closer to later in the year so that they it's easier for them to swallow the idea of well what am i going to gain with a five or six month old dog in the woods i feel like it's that nine ten month old dog that people are because they look like dogs they're puppies but they look like a dog i feel like they're the ones that are hard to have it sink in that you know what i'm better off to just wait but yeah I want to ask you about the pointing dog stuff too, but we are, we are going to save that for part two. So we won't go into it, but just to kind of put a little cap on this for myself, like the, it's kind of like going back to like what we call things. We call it hunt. So it's fall, it's, it's October. I've got a dog, you know, going for a walk in the woods. I could say that sure. versus, versus saying hunting. It's kind of right. how you approach, how yeah. you approach the time we spend together. It's not that we aren't doing anything during hunting season, for sure. but, but calling it hunting kind of puts visions in, in your head. And I, I definitely approached my first dog's first hunting season much differently than my second dog. Fortunately to very little ill effect with, with dog number one, but I learned a lot that first one going to number two and how yeah. you approach things. It's that's a great point. And I never really thought about that, but like if you, if, if it were September, October, November, those three months, that's when, you know, we get to do our, our thing. If the dog was, if, if it was 10, if the puppy's 10 months old and it's not September, October, November, it's April, May, June, you're going to like, you can do the same stuff. Now, you can't go in the woods with birds, I guess, during that time. But so the beauty of that September, October, November with the 10-month-old dog is, yeah, you don't have, it doesn't mean you have to keep them in their kennel. I'm not saying you can't take them hunting. But the problem, I think, that comes in is when we start thinking about what is hunting. Well, yes. now it's we get the guns, we got our, we're loading up, we're hoping to bag, we're eating the birds. So now all of a sudden, me as, as a trainer, I'm not a trainer anymore. I'm a hunter. And if you if you become a hunter, you should be a trainer. 
with these young dogs. And if you forget that, you become a hunter and the dog training part goes to the wayside, that's where the problems are going to come up. Because you're going to sacrifice stuff that you wouldn't do if it wasn't hunting season. And so if you can, if you can have the discipline, like duck hunting, uh, you know, I, if I take a, I took blue, this is that dog that I took in the woods. Now he was, now that I think about it, like I did everything a little bit earlier with him. He's the dog that I did less with. And I actually did stuff earlier with him. And I think it's partially because of the dog and partially because of the approach I took. But by slowing down and doing less, I was able to do more in the end. And that's a lesson probably for me and anyone listening. But I took him duck hunting. It was October. I've got a duck blind in front of a couple duck blinds in front of my cabin. And I took him with by himself. And I, <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to shoot many birds. I, I don't necessarily go to shoot ducks. I go to drink coffee and <laughs> smoke my pipe and watch the sun come up. And yeah. I really enjoy that. So I go out in front of my cabin. I'd rather do that than sleep in. So I'll do that in the morning. And I brought him with. And I thought, you know what? There might be a few wood ducks. We might get a shot at a wood duck. We might not get a shot at a wood duck. We might have an opportunity and not shoot at a wood duck. But we might, but I'm going to bring him with, and he's going to sit in the blind with me and drink coffee. And I did that a couple mornings. And I texted pictures to his owner, and I was like, so was I hunting with him? Technically, I suppose I was. Technically, yes. Yeah. But was it, was it like I was on a hunt? Not at all. And it really was an extension of our training. It was a, the most realistic training we could do I, I i think we all understand like we mock up our hunts mm-hmm. we go to game farms we we build the blind in the yard we get the dummy launchers that you know shoot you do the quack and the throw the dummies and all that fancy shit i don't do it i don't do much of that stuff but we do all that stuff to get to simulate the hunt in training and then we all of a sudden go to hunting well to me, there's a, there's a really important part of training a dog that is what I probably call the transition. And so there's the training part, which is building all those skills, shaping all those behaviors. There's the hunting part, which is applying them. It's the utilitary part of this equation. What's really probably necessary and maybe should be a bigger, bigger share of it is the transitional part, which happens in the middle. And so for me, that was, you know, those were opportunities for me to take a dog in a duck blind. And there was no pressure. There's no one with me. Yep. I'm not guiding or entertaining or, you know, it's just, I'm just going out and replicating as realistically as possible. And we train there. That's my cabin. So like we train there in the summer. I was up there last weekend and I was working with them on those, in those spots, the dogs. So that's all stuff that I think is, as a trainer, I think it's important to understand there's the beginning, there's the end. But everything in the middle is probably the most important. Yeah, I, I love that. That transition was the word that popped into my head as you described that. Again, you technically you're sitting there with a gun, and it yeah. was hunting season, so technically you're hunting, but your expectations were aligned a lot differently than were you sitting there with a six year old dog and right, and, right. and that's really the important part that um, certainly I've I've learned over the years and uh would be important for for folks paying attention to this definitely and it's it's the luxury we have yeah as 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 a trainer of our own dog we can do that i Mm -hmm. I can i can take dogs and have as slow of a hunt as as i want i can go it it's this idea and i'm not i'm not knocking the idea of professional trainers because i think they're definitely needed 
There are You're great just highlighting things. the difference. Yeah, yeah, there's a difference. And I think we have to be honest about it. And that's, yeah. where, that's where I look at like, the idea of how to train a dog. And I look at it and I go, there's lots of different ways to do it. We all know that. But I think it's also important to understand the circumstances of who's delivering the message and what is, this, what is their story and how does it align to yours. Because if you're, if you're training your own, you're going to do it different than Bob Owens is going to do his, his dogs yeah. because Bob's got a different situation. Jerry Coulter's the same way. You know, I, 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 I visit with Jerry and I, I get to have, he's a very generous guy and he's, he's willing to share, which is, I think, another thing that I think is really important as a dog trainer, which is what I'm trying to hopefully to be able to accomplish is so many people have shared information with me. And so I, I, I if anything, I hope I can help someone else. But he, when I go by him, we set up, you know, we'll work a dozen dogs and in, in that half a day. And I learned so much observing that and being a part of that and watching it. And then I get the value of him watching me with my dog and he can give me feedback and all that stuff. But I then come home and I won't replicate what Jerry did exactly here. I'll take little bits and pieces, those barnacles, those few barnacles that stick, I'll bring yeah. back here, and then I'll replicate it, and I'll do it a different way because I have the luxury of that. I don't have anybody breathing down my neck saying, I'm picking the dog up in 30 days. I don't have any commitment to anybody of saying, I can do this for you, for your dog, in this amount of time. I don't have any of that stuff. And that, that, does, that does change the the equation yeah yeah you're aware of your own situation and how yeah. that how that changes how you might go about and that's okay right and that's that's right. really the you could you could put a underlying statement on that for this whole podcast that's yeah it's not even okay you it's do you you do you <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah. the best part about it you know yeah yeah i love it well shoot man i didn't even get to ask you about going up to Pinehurst Grouse Camp and Woodcock oh, Bandy, blast, like man. I said, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll save that for next time and we'll talk maybe a little bit more pointing dog stuff and grouse hunting and shotguns and that sort for of sure. thing. But I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show today. This was a blast. Uh, as I said, great to connect with you and we'll keep in touch, but where can folks go to find, find more information from you? You got a podcast, you got a YouTube yeah. channel, where do they go? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, it's our podcast is um, the Dogbone Podcast, and our the, I guess the best place to find everything to kind of start out is it's Dogbone Hunter. So that's our website. That's our um, social media handles, uh, our YouTube. Um, our our really our I think you know we're a company that has products like, but I think what's important is for us the 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 idea is. If they don't, if people don't know how to use the products or don't aren't able to use the products effectively, what good is it? You know, like our best marketing mm-hmm. is for people to have success using our stuff, and so the idea behind that is, well, sh- you need to share that. You need to be able to give them the tools, but more importantly, help them use the tools. And so, Dogbone Hunter is kind of the the hub of that, and we do you know social we do all the social media stuff and. Um, I have found that they all have their own place. None of, there's no like one that's perfect, um, between TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and podcasts and 
they all like they all have their place and they all have their their sweet spot as far as delivery and our i think our team is our i'm really proud of our team i feel like they work super hard and they they do a great job of kind of breaking those disciplines out and hopefully delivering it in a in a way that that's palatable i guess to to whoever it is listening to it wherever they're listening to it but dogbone hunters if you google that that'll get you going in the right direction awesome all right buddy well once again thank you for for taking the time today this was this was a lot of fun and i look forward to the next time you and i get to chat absolutely man i appreciate you i appreciate you doing this i've looked forward to it for a long time and i'm glad you finally got connected on it heck yeah buddy thank you and uh you have a great rest of your day hang on with me for just a second that does it for this episode of the Birdshot podcast thanks for tuning in everybody Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.